We work with farmers and ranchers to remove carbon permanently at scale using existing infrastructure. We take a rock, in this case, it's olivine, that if you pulverize it and add it to those soils, it does something for the farmer, which is condition the soil to have a better pH. And then when it dissolves, it pulls carbon dioxide and keeps it in solution for about a half million years. So if we're really going to use this as a substitute for emissions, we want solutions that are permanent. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Adam Wolf founder and CEO of ION. ION is an enhanced rock weathering startup that works with farmers and ranchers to safely and permanently pull carbon out of the air. They use a rock called olivine, which is the most abundant rock on earth. And by 2026, they will be on track to permanently remove 500,000 tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere per year. They've got some extra support with a $12 million Series A last year from investors such as Ag Funder, Trailhead Capital, and Orion Corporation. In addition, Adam is the former founder, CEO, and chief scientist at Arable Lands and a former associate research scholar at Princeton University. He's also got a PhD from Stanford University, so total slacker, haha, and is learning to build a studio in his backyard using traditional building techniques. So yeah, this guy likes to build stuff. Keep listening here. In this episode, we talked about how their company name came to his co-founder in a dream and turns out has three or four relevant meanings depending on how you pronounce their company's name. Why this olivine rock is so powerful as a carbon removal tool how they utilize existing infrastructure from farmers and ranchers to mainstream their solution at scale and lower costs in the process, why they spent two years figuring out how to get the measurement process right to assess their carbon removal, the critical role of Norwegian forwards and rock crushing in scaling their company, what he means by a BS counterfactual carbon baseline, why the Department of Agriculture's Climate Smart Commodities Program is so important, the benefits of voracious self-learning, and lots more. Hope you enjoyed, and please give Adam and I on a shout-out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Adam Wolf, founder and CEO at ION, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with the name. Where does the name Ion, which I, I tried to say improperly, Aeon, Eon, where does it come from, Adam? Well, we couldn't incorporate till we had a name. 
And the truth is that it came to my co-founder, Elliot, in a dream. And when he woke up and looked it up, it turns out it references a decisive battle in the Peloponnesian War. And I thought like, okay, well, that's good enough for me. (laughs) But then, you know, backing up for a second, we think like ion, like I got my eye on you. Mm. I'm keeping my eye on this carbon Mm. eon. It's going to stay, you know, out of the atmosphere for a long time. Ions, working with ions, it's like we're chemists, so we never stop talking about ions. So it really feels like it works for a bunch of different reasons, even though it came out of the subconscious. That's a much better story than I even had thought about. That's great. So many possible interpretations. Yeah, it's, it makes me laugh a little bit because when I, when I look at applications of CEOs or investors who may join the the climate CEO peer group that I run, I ask them, I said, well, you know, in the application, where does it learn about us? And, you know, it's the obvious stuff like, oh, well, LinkedIn or the newsletter or whatever. And then the, what option is divine intervention while you were sleeping last night? Mm. Looks like that's, you know, two, two peas in a pod anyway. It's why we all need to be getting more sleep. <laughs> <laughs> nice tie-in to a question later, which is about habits and routines. All right. So we have Ion. What's the pitch, man? What do you guys do in the CDR space? It's easy. We work with farmers and ranchers to remove carbon permanently at scale using existing infrastructure. So my whole life, I've been working with working lands, agricultural landscapes, really seeing them as a a way to leverage that vast acreage towards environmental good. And, you know, in the case of ion, we take uh, a rock. I mean, it's really not super complicated. A rock, uh, in this case, it's olivine, that if you pulverize it and add it to those soils, it does something for the farmer, which is condition the soil to have a better pH. So think of it like Tums. And then that also, when it dissolves, it pulls carbon dioxide and keeps it in solution. Uh, And most importantly, it keeps it in solution for about a half million years. And that turns out that permanence ends up being a really key key piece of the puzzle because of a lot of approaches to taking carbon out of the atmosphere, like, you know, growing forests has has a finite lifetime, but the CO2 we put into the atmosphere is there for about 35,000 years. So if we're really going to use this as a substitute for emissions, we want solutions that are permanent. Mm. And you held up a picture, or not a picture, you held up a physical specimen, the, the, the rock, olivine. How would you describe that to folks who are listening? Well, I am a, a, a bit of a rock salesman, so I've got this rock. If you like green rocks, it's, uh, it's quite a charismatic green rock. This is a, a sparkly white rock, comes from Canada. This is called Wallastonite. So when you're in the uh, the rock slinging business, you, you come to get into a lot of different variations. This is a, a deeper green rock. This is still olivine, but kind of looks a little closer to serpentine, which is another one of these silicate rocks. All of these rocks, what they have in common is that they have a lot of calcium and magnesium. And when the calcium and magnesium are liberated, you know, the the rocks dissolve 
they come into solution and that's what creates this this alkalizing effect and that's also the the charge that calcium and magnesium have is what keeps the carbon dioxide in solution so all of these rocks even the gravel in my driveway if you pulverized it remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere just some rocks are better than others and some rocks are better just because they're closer mm. and you you mentioned the reference to tums maybe just go one or two steps further with that analogy yeah so ph ends up being you know one of these these master variables you know i think uh, linus pauling got a nobel prize for you know all of his work on vitamin c and so in the case of plants soils Older soils in particular can be very acidic. And when soils are old and acidic, two things happen. One is that there's a lot of aluminum in solution, and aluminum is detrimental to plant growth. This is true in the tropics generally. The other piece is that a lot of the essential nutrients that plants need to grow is unavailable. So it kind of precipitates or it binds to some other element and the plant can't get at it. So when you add in these alkalizers and, you know, calcium carbonate, chalk is another alkalizer. It's quite common to put into soils, old seashells. This raises the pH. And so it, you know, puts that aluminum to rest and it also makes all those essential nutrients more available. Turns out the bugs in the soil are also a lot happier. So there's all kinds of bacteria, fungi, little worms and, and critters that all are happier when the pH is closer to neutral. I'm so just a pretty simple, you know, adjustment and suddenly the whole system is happier. So a, a good reminder for any of us with teenagers to say, yeah, look, chemistry does matter. I promise. Keep studying. No, I, I'm learning chemistry that I had tuned out even when I was in grad school. And suddenly it's like, oh, my God, the rock cycle. Mm. <laughs> I, I went into agriculture because I was really drawn to things that were kind of human scale. You know, I, I didn't go super deep into, you know, microbiology or molecular biology. I also didn't get super big into atmospheric science, climatology. There's something about working at the scale of plants and fields and bugs and people that I find totally intuitive. And really, there's a lot of chemistry of the soil or of the, the earth that operates on really long time scales or really large spatial scales. And so it's pretty easy to tune out even climate change when you think about it mm. you know, so vast and that's one of the problems with dealing with it is that our human brains are hard to put together those kinds of signals and this is why i think agriculture is such a powerful lens into solving climate change because we can all relate to food we can all relate to you know driving past or even spending time on farm fields and then to see, well, that same thing that happens on that field, if you multiply it, could be large, suddenly makes the problem feel more solvable. 
you know, otherwise it's so, so giant as to be intimidating. Mm. The other interesting thing appears to be that your all solution is not just about carbon removal. In fact, in many ways, that's a side benefit from the farmer's perspective, right? They said, look, I want to grow more crops, healthier crops, quicker crops to take to market, et cetera. And to get there, I'm going to apply this dust to my to my fields. I think the other thing which sounds different for you all is you recognize that the distribution essentially of the product, that's, that's a cost. It can be a high cost. But if you utilize the farmers and ranchers' own infrastructure, you cut at that cost, which I, I presume all that, b- both of those factors can lead to a lower dollar per ton for the carbon dioxide removals, dot, dot, dot. Is any of that true? Yeah, well, a, a lot of the obstacles that you're describing are as much to do with a shift from what anybody's doing now. So just the fact that we can use the pre-existing infrastructure, let alone having it be cost effective, it's just very powerful to say that this isn't a drop-in, that this is a drop-in substitute for something that you're doing already. And, you know, the appeal to growers is that they don't have to not do anything. So much of the approach to addressing the climate carbon problem in agriculture is around not doing things, not harvesting forests, not cultivating lands. And as somebody who's never really succeeded at dieting, it's hard to not do things. And what I really like about this is that from a farmer's perspective, they are still farming and they're farming in a way that is familiar, but they're substituting one product, which, you know, in the case of AgLime emits carbon dioxide with another product, which in the case of these silicate rocks removes carbon dioxide. And that just feels close enough that it's a pretty easy reach for most folks. And it turns out that a lot of the places that most need this ag lime, let's say where where the Tums is wanted the most, it's least found, right? So old weathered soils of the South, Southeast, those are the places where ag lime is not very abundant. And so it turns out those are places where there's the greatest desire for this kind of solution just from an agronomic perspective. So you raise another good point here, but that is where is the rock, right? So wh- where do you find uh, olivine? You find these rocks really everywhere where continents collide. So the coastal range on the west and uh, the Appalachian range on the east. All of this is chock full of these silicate rocks that are high in magnesium in particular. Olivine is kind of unusual. It's the most abundant rock in the universe. I've got I've got a meteorite with olivine granules in it. And yet it's almost entirely within the mantle. Okay, so it's, you know, a hundred or more kilometers below the ground it starts to come up as the oceanic floor. So all the oceans have these plates that 
start in the middle of the ocean with that spreading center. That's serpentine. It's like a cousin of olivine. And that eventually collides with the continent. Usually it's heavier. And so it subducts. But sometimes it kind of crumbles up and ends up on the land. And so there's all kinds of these kind of basaltic or other silicate outcrops in these mountain ranges. So when I reference the gravel in my driveway, it's just from a basalt quarry up the street from me. And in other ways, it's it's as ubiquitous as the quarries that are used in every county for building and road construction materials. Mm. And so you mentioned the Appalachian, you mentioned the Southeast as, as one of these spots where the soils are old and acidic and in need of some, some more love with these amendments. That's where we're based as it, as it happens in North Carolina. So in our, in our backyard, you talked about the, these quarries being kind of in each County, something like olivine, would that be as distributed enough to be kind of not evenly distributed across the Southeast, but I guess how evenly distributed or how concentrated might it be in places like the Appalachians, let's say. I'm just thinking about a listener question, which I'm sure is, hey, look, rock's heavy. Sounds great for the climate so far, but how do you get heavy rock uh, to where it needs to go on fields? Yeah, there's, I would say, a lot of mineral resources that are okay. So your local rock quarry is a great example. And that may be able to be cost effective, you know, within 20 or 50 miles. And that may cover parts of a county, depending on, you know, how much of these fine powders left over from the quarrying. In our case, we're working with this rock called olivine that is situated kind of miraculously on a fjord. And so they're able to transport it and load it directly onto a, kind of a large bulk vessel and put it almost anywhere in the world with virtually no emissions. So, you know, when you're putting 50, 75,000 tons of material onto a boat, the emissions from that boat become extremely small. In fact, most of the emissions are in that last mile once they get loaded onto a truck and distributed out to the farm. And so you end up with something that looks like the modern fertilizer industry or even the not modern fertilizer industry. We used to use you know, guano for phosphorus that was harvested from islands where bird droppings had accumulated. And those would be, you know, transported across the world. And in the same way, we get sulfur and phosphorus and potassium at these kind of unique quarries in different parts of the world and transported where they need to go. And what makes these quarries special usually is some miracle of geography. So in the case of this one in Norway, just happens to be a large outcrop that sits on a, a deep water port. All right. And as you think about some of the challenges remaining to get your all's solution to scale, what, what comes to mind? What's, what's not quite solved yet? The old challenge was one that we started the company around, which is 
you know, how to measure it. You know, we, we founded the company under two principles. One is to make a vertically integrated company. So oriented around a specific resource that we would bring to market. And we really saw this as a way to bring it to scale cost effectively. And two, we would have to measure it. And so I spent a lot of time in the agricultural organic carbon context. And there, the market was really difficult to develop because it was hard to measure and it was hard to model, it was, you know, hard to simulate. And so there's just a lot of ambiguity if you were a buyer or if you were a seller, like how much carbon am I buying? Or, you know, how much is going to be delivered if I manage my my land this way? And so for us, part of what I loved about the system is that it's really bounded. Like I can put on one ton of rock onto one acre of land and I know exactly how much carbon is eventually going to be removed. And then I need to take some soil samples to verify that. And so that verification was the kind of, we spent the first two years developing all the fingerprinting techniques that we use to prove that. So you could say, okay, great. You figured out how to measure carbon removal with enhanced rock weathering. What's your biggest challenge? Just like mm. you just asked. And here, nobody ever pulverizes these rocks at this scale. Okay, so if you're making concrete, you're pulverizing calcium carbonate and calcining it into calcium oxide, and there's a whole set of processes there. But in general, these silicate rocks are not pulverized, and they're very hard, right? So they're, they're a lot tougher to break down, and therefore the machines haven't really been developed for creating this product. And so we actually spent a lot of time really on the mechanical engineering of how to smash up the rocks, which the machines themselves have already been invented. They're kind of ubiquitous, but all of the material handling aspects of it and loading it onto trucks and getting it applied evenly all of which has to be done safely so that, you know, workers aren't exposed to dust hazards and things like that is not trivial. And so that's where a lot of our engineering is focused. So it's exciting to be at the frontier. That's like the best part of this job is that there's frontline science and engineering to be, to be worked on, which is just thrilling. Well, coming from chemistry to geology, I wasn't expecting to hear that this is a logistics and mechanical engineering challenge, but uh, I guess the, the deeper you go, right, um, the, the more problems to uncover and, and solve and look and create value out there for sure. On the measurement, so is there a third party, I don't know, protocol or method for enhanced rock weathering that you all can use to help buyers to buy with more confidence? How does that work? Or maybe guess what's coming, perhaps. Yeah, no, it's an interesting topic. We're we're deep in that right now. And it takes a little bit to figure out even the market map of who is doing what. It turns out it's not enough to have a methodology. 
that, you know, says this is how we're going to measure the carbon. The best methodologies belong to standards with a capital S. And the best of those standards are certified by an organization called ICROA. And so there exists a finite number of these ACROA certified standards. So Vera, Gold Standard, Puro, you know, these are like what people are are used to thinking. And so each of them is spending some time on methodologies. And then those methodologies, there's kind of two layers to it. One is, can we all agree on how nature works? And this is what I think of as essential for us and all of our peer companies to come to some agreement on, and not just peer companies, but the buyers and the you know, various uh, NGOs and scientific stakeholders, you know, if we can all agree, this is how nature works. Like there's emissions when we extract it, transport it, distribute it, apply it. There's carbon removal when the rock dissolves and then it's ends up in the ocean where it's stored on some time frame. So how does nature work? And then within that, you could picture every company has its own flavor of how to implement that, how to instrument nature. You know, I could have some device that I stick in the ground and monitor all of these biogeochemical processes. I could have uh, a soil sample. I could have uh, a little accumulator that sucks up the, the bicarbonate that is produced. So there's a lot of different variations. And this is also an area where besides every company figuring out how to like do the logistics part. They're also figuring out the system for how do we measure all the, you know, key steps so that we can do this at some scale. And the insight that I had, and I probably am not unique on this, but in agriculture, it doesn't like things in fields, you know, like soil sensors, things like that. It's just very hard to maintain instruments. It's hard to, we played a little bit with putting a, uh, like a resin ball in the ground that would suck up ions so you can measure all these reaction products, but then you'd have to go back and get that little resin ball. What we ended up with is a soil sample and a soil sample is appealing because Many of America's acres, and certainly uh, in Europe as well, have soil samples, and not just the occasional soil sample, but gridded soil samples. And those gridded soil samples serve to make, you know, recommendations. Picture you go to a doctor's visit, you got an annual physical, there's a routine set of tests that you do. So adding on one more test becomes pretty easy. And this enables us to add in some separate chemistry that is done in the same lab, but uh, looks at some different elements that, you know, collectively we call them immobile trace elements. And those end up being kind of a record of the rock application, the dissolution and its loss, ultimately removing carbon dioxide with it. Got it. Another question I'm sure listeners are asking is, how do you make money, Adam? 
I, well, that's a great question. <laughs> this is a market that is starting from catalytic buyers. And so there's buyers like Stripe and Microsoft and Shopify that looked at the existing offerings in carbon offsets, oh, three, four years ago, and found them to be problematic. And the the key way that they're problematic is using kind of BS counterfactual baselines. So a lot of carbon is like, well, what if I had a forest that I told you I was going to cut it down and you paid me not to cut it down? Well, then maybe you can claim that carbon dioxide that was prevented from getting into the atmosphere. And you can see that on the surface, it makes a lot of sense and you know resulted in the conservation of a lot of intact forests through the Red Plus program in particular. But it's very hard to decide on what that counterfactual baseline is or ought to have been. Okay. And so this is where buyers wanted to get into this, you know, truly additional carbon and why companies like Charm and Climeworks are at such a premium is because the carbon that they remove is truly additional. If you paid for it, you get it. Now, it's recognized that those early catalytic purchases, it's it's at a price that does not scale or, you know, many people could not stomach. You know, so the average American, our budget is 16 tons of carbon dioxide per person. That's like the emissions of America divided by the population. And so picture, is it $2,000? Is it $1,200? Is it $500? For most people, those are like big numbers, you know, eight grand a year for your carbon removal. So those are essential to bringing down the price where the next cohort of buyers are, you know, large emitters that are legitimately just trying to pay competitive prices as a way to balance their carbon budget. And then long-term, I think what you're going to find is that a lot of supply chains are going to account for these emissions internal to their budgeting. This is called insetting. So instead of you know, buying offsets from some third party like ION that, you know, let's be honest, what business do we have in common with, you know, Stripe or Microsoft? That's an offset. But, you know, you can imagine that there's a lot of emissions within the food and ag industry that naturally this starts to change the carbon budget of the foods we eat. And ultimately, you know, people pay for carbon either through our taxes or as consumers. And I believe that ultimately this is all going to be through the products we buy. And so we'll see that this is kind of an insetting solution at scale. Okay. So, so in addition to companies paying kind of within their industry or, or, or outside of their industry for the carbon removals that you all create, is there any scenario where farmers would pay you in the same way that you're 
replacing something they would normally pay for to provide a clear benefit to completing their business, right? Growing, growing crops. Yeah. I like to think that, you know, everybody buys something if they think it's a deal. You know, I, I like, I pay $16 a pound for coffee and it's outrageous, but I don't ever not buy that. Right. So I must be getting something out of that $16 a pound of coffee. And in the same way for something to work within the supply chain, every person has to benefit. And so the farmer is certainly like at the center, you know, they're the most important person, but there's also the barge operator and the mill workers and the truck drivers and the agronomists, certainly the farmer, the guys who are running the applicators. So every person in that whole supply chain gets paid. Okay. And the way that that's paid for in the traditional agricultural sense is that, you know, all of those inputs create value in the form of crops that are sold to processors who buy it. The reason why those inputs have value is that they produce more benefit than they cost. And what we've seen with our crop applications Farmers have seen a, a 10 bushel increase in their soybean yields. And I think, you know, like a $12 a bushel soybean cost, that's a benefit of around $120 per acre. So, you know, lime prices are in the, you know, 20 to $50 territory in, uh, in the South. And picture that, you know, farmers may get benefit from the the yield that's produced. Ultimately, I'd like them to get a price premium on the crops that they produce. This is the whole premise behind the USDA's Climate Smart Commodities Program is to kind of decommodify farm products so that they have more value. You know, picture 25 or 50 cent premium per bushel can also start to add up uh, and that has value. And why does that bushel have a price premium? Well, maybe it's being put into a product that itself commands a premium, right? So the, the most profitable parts of the grocery store are the organic, the non-GMO, you know, the products that are in some way differentiated. You know, maybe they're using an heirloom variety of tomatoes and, you know, a bottle of ketchup, all of those create value for the farmer. And they're always for the kind of consumer's desire to have a better product to go back to the farm. And what I see is that, you know, the big opportunity of our time is that our, you know, awareness as consumers that our, our food dollar goes somewhere and does something, it actually creates the farming system that we want to have. And so like we've seen it in organic and I think we'll see more of it in the, in the climate space. Well, I heard a lot of important things there, Adam, but most importantly, I should be drinking coffee with you for this podcast, given the kind of coffee you buy. Anyway, the, the DO, DOA department, department of agriculture program, you said was climate smart commodities. Is that right? Yeah, the the USDA had a, a climate smart commodities program, and 
they really just wanted to open the doors to innovation for, you know, without picking one or another program as, you know, being the, the right approach, they created a mechanism for a lot of people to propose. And some of it is carbon programs and conventional crops like corn and soy. There's some that we have seen for beef and other kind of meat products, some focused on alcohol, cotton, picture there's anything that can have a value to the consumer. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I think listeners should look at what Department of Ag is doing as a, a trend that, should, that could show up in other industries, right? Creating distinction in what happens in the, in the production of commodities. They're not all the same. Think uh, green steel, you know, uh, gr- all sorts of green industrial products as well, not just what we, what we eat. Hey, it's Chris. Just a brief message from our sponsors and we'll get back to the show. <laughs> just kidding. We don't take sponsors. On the other hand, I do have the privilege of leading the only executive peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors fighting climate change. With monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. Today's 30-plus members represent over $8 billion in market cap or assets under management for climate solutions. If you're interested, go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. All right, back to the show. Okay, let's switch over from Ion to Adam here. So Adam, reflect back here, advice you might give your your younger self. Give us give us a couple a couple of tidbits here. I my younger self, I was just kind of voracious to know how to do things. And for me, the people that I like to hire, like everybody knows how to do a lot of different things. And to really just be voracious about kind of self, self-teaching is really what I see is, I don't know, it's so hard to give advice to my younger self <laughs> without it seeming like do the thing that led to my own success. But ultimately, if I was to look at, you know, young people don't have it easy right now. Like it's a challenging world in a lot of ways, the template has been set, but really out of, you know, this inspiration to know that you can change things if you know how to create things is, I think, the most powerful lesson. Mm. Voracious self-teaching. I like that soundbite. I may may bring it up over dinner (laughs) with my kids tonight as well. How about, tell us some habits or routines, Adam, to keep you healthy, sane, and focused as a CEO of a startup? I... Well, I used to run and then I find that, you know, the more I run, why am I always sore and always tired? Oh, it's because I'm running too much. And so I I switched to uh, weightlifting and stretching. And so my current routine is barbells, kettlebells, and abundant flexibility, my hamstrings and uh, hip openers. Mm -hmm. So I, I know it's probably, well, and on the weekends... I'm always making things, you know, it's, it's construction projects, it's photography, it's art, it's, you know, mm-hmm. so I try always to let my brain relax mm-hmm. 
in things that have nothing to do with work, but yeah. it always gives me the inspiration to have 10 more ideas when I come back to it. Yeah. You're clearly a builder. What's an example of a, of an art or photography project you got going right now? Teaching myself, uh, timber framing for a, uh, a structure we have in the backyard. And then having put in the most part of the timber frame, now I'm shingling. So then I, I, I cleared out my basement and I'm, was trying to remember. I spent a bunch of time in uh, Russia, so I'm trying to remember how they uh, plastered the walls and got them so like beautifully multicolored in St. Petersburg. Mm. It's like archaic building techniques. Okay. And what what's the use of this structure going to be? I it's whatever's not a man cave. I want it to be like a community <laughs> space. You know, do art, do music, mm. have dinner. You know, really, like, I really like the idea of public space where people get to spend time mm. um, and creating space for people. Mm. In some ways, that's what I most like about having a company is creating the space for everybody else to be able to do what they, you know, want to do in their life. And the same thing with having a, a nice space in the yard is like, well, what if we had a space where we could do art, do performance, make food? have a workshop so yeah like uh like a studio slash yeah venue of sorts in the backyard i like that yeah headless for who knows what right yeah exactly exactly hey maybe the last one here i know that your daughter is going to expect you at the playground sh shortly give us uh, a, a couple of ideas on books podcasts tools or quote quotes maybe that you think listeners may benefit from i love there's a couple books one's called the emerald planet by David Beerling. And the other is uh, a book by Wally Broker called How to Build a Habitable Planet. And I know there's a newer version, but I like there's a really old version with a super hokey cover. And what I like about them is that they both talk about this world we're in as this like coupled system that includes life and non-life, you know, there's, there's physics and chemistry and all these kind of like abiotic processes, but you know, you, me, we're humans, we're organisms. We react to things and depending on what our mood is, we might react to different things differently. Mm. And that's true of every living thing on our planet is that they're reacting to the changes in circumstances. And for me, it really kind of reinforces some of the kind of the wonder of what it is that's on this world and why we're, you know, why am I spending my life trying to, to keep it intact is really around this kind of miracle of evolution and biology. Mm. Uh, it's well said. It, it, it makes me think about folks that uh, leave SpaceX, let's say, to come work on something in the climate tech space where the soundbite is something like, I realized I was creating technology to take us to a different planet, yet we got a pretty damn good one right here. We just need to find more solutions a little more quickly, which- uh, Totally. I mean, I think the, I mean, who doesn't love looking at the stars? You know, it's, it's like, we are in that universe. That universe is extraordinary. And yet, you know, Mars is barren. Mm. <laughs> and like- we have such a rare gem in our hands mm. that, you know, 
you spend a little bit of time contemplating what it's going to like to live out there and realize like, gosh, I, I should spend more time trying to preserve what's down here. Yeah. Yeah. Preach on. Uh, hey, Adam, we'll call it a, we'll call it a day uh, with that one. We're we're rooting for the success of Ion and eager to to, to have these uh, crushing and handling and uh, marketplace challenges resolved and see this kind of get to scale. I and, and let's hope that in 12 months I will still be here and we'll be crushing it. <laughs> I think you've used that line before, but I'll take it. That's a good one. All right, Adam. I never got a laugh, but it's true. All right. Thank you very much. You got it. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all y'all. Take care.